you can have your Bibles open at Habakkuk chapter 2, that would be, I think, helpful for you and certainly very helpful to me. And as you do that, let me pray and we'll get uh, down to work, hey? Heavenly Father, thank you for these words and thank you for uh, their ongoing um, relevance to us today. And so we pray that we'd approach them with uh, open ears, but more importantly, open hearts, willing to change, so that we might be like the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. In a story, and I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, uh, a sceptic was having dinner with a minister one night uh, and he asked the minister if he really believed the Bible and the minister said yes. And the second question came, is there anything that you can't explain? And the the next reply was yes, once again. Uh, But this time the minister even showed him the places in his Bible that were marked with question marks And in fact, there were many places in his Bible that had question marks scrawled on the pages. And so a little surprised, the sceptic asked a third question, what do you do with all the things you can't explain? And the minister said, it's very simple. I do the same thing that I'm doing with this fish that I'm eating. I eat the meat and I push all the bones to the side of the plate and then let any fool who wants to choke on them. Now, uh, that does seem a bit harsh, don't you reckon? And so that's why I think it's probably not a true story. But I can relate to being sustained by the meat of the scriptures. And I can also relate to at times wrestling in disbelief and doubt and confusion. And I have to admit that sometimes it's not all that easy to just push the bones to the side of the plate and to leave the doubts there for others to worry about because they're not called niggling doubts for no reason, are they? What do we do, friends, when violence abounds, when injustice is rampant, when our inner life is characterised by turmoil and when God seems unconcerned, absent or paralysed? How do you deal with his silent spectating when you just want him to front up? Because that's the scenario we left Habakkuk in last week. He saw strife in the land of Judah, that's the southern half of Israel. He saw violence amongst its residents and he asked the question of God, how long? And when God's baffling reply was that he would send the barbarous superpower of the day, Babylon, to mete out justice uh, to his unjust countrymen, it wasn't really the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. You might even say he choked on them bones before he resolved to wait and to watch along the walls of Jerusalem, which is where we pick up the story today at chapter 2, verse 1. So let's refer to that again. I will stand at my watch, says Habakkuk, and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. In the words of last week, he opted for lookout rather than lockout or lockdown, wondering what answer God would supply. And in the rest of our chapter today, he gets the reply that he was craving. God answers him in a way that reminds him that uh, reminds us really of God's overpowering, overwhelming answer to Job out of the whirlwind that I read at the beginning of the service. And as we look closely at chapter 2, we're going to see what it looks like when God brings justice. And we'll also learn that we might have to wait yet a little longer for that to happen. And so we'll consider the important question of how to wait well, what that might look like. So firstly then, God will respond with justice. He's not paralyzed, he's not absent, he's not indifferent, he's not incapable. He said in chapter 1 that he would send Babylon to execute judgment upon his own wayward people. Now that happened as a matter of history 
when the residents of Judah were exiled in the 6th century BC, with the first wave being carted off in 597 and the main group leaving in 586. But the fact that God used the Babylonians for his purpose does not mean they escape his judgment for their barbarity and cruelty. So what would it look like when God brings justice? Well, let's pick up God's response from verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Habakkuk, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. My response, says God, is coming and it will be both true and unmistakable. And in the verses that follow, it is a response of judgment. For the marauding Babylonians are proud and puffed up, arrogant and insatiably greedy. Look at verse 5. They are as greedy as the grave. What an image. Taking captive the nations of the world. But God sees it all. He knows what's going down. And just because he doesn't appear to take action immediately, it doesn't mean he's going to let everything go through to the keeper. It is coming, my friend Habakkuk, he says. And when it does, you be ready and pass it on. Now, some of you will know that uh, my extended family are all from Brisbane, and uh, I have splintered, but nonetheless, very fond memories of spending um, time with my dad's parents at their holiday home in Budrum on the Sunshine Coast. Um, if you've been to Budrum, in fact, raise your hands if you've been to Budrum. Let's quite a few of you. I understand <clears throat> it's quite a happening place now, but back in the day, it was a, a sleepy town built on the stained red soil of the Sunshine Coast hinterland and really built on the cultivation of ginger and sugarcane. And I've got very fond memories of sitting on the back veranda where you could see the screen of the Maroochydore Drive-In Cinema if you knew where to look. didn't help because you couldn't hear it, but you could see it. And uh, I've got fond memories of watching the cane fires at the end of the harvest season until the sea breeze blew all the ash up onto the hinterland. But I especially remember warmly playing a memory game with my gran. And she had these very retro cards with photos of birds and animals on them. Looks sort of like this, but they were way more retro. And you laid them out face down, and then you took turns uh, sort of turning them over and trying to find matches. And whoever got the most matches won the game. Well, in chapter 2, God describes his judgment of Babylon and perhaps even some of the unscrupulous characters left within Israel And what we see is that there is a match of the crime to the judgment that is handed out by God. Now, you're going to see what I mean. The first charge against Babylon is that it's built an empire upon just gain. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion, verse 6. So what's going to happen? Verse 7, your creditors will also rise up and make you pay. Can you see there's a match there? Because you plundered nations, verse 8. The nations which are left will plunder you. You build your realm on high to escape ruin. Even the stones will cry out and the wooden rafters will sound the echo. Look at verse 12. It moves slightly to denouncing or from denouncing fraud, plunder, extortion to condemning an empire built upon bloodshed and violence. What will be the outcome of their violence? In verse 17, the violence they've done in the land of Lebanon ransacking world-famous cedar forests for building siege ramps and building projects back home. 
well, that will come back to haunt them. Even the animals whose habitats they butchered will taunt them. And their enemies would do the same to Babylon when that empire inevitably faded. So you can see there's another match there. In verse 15, uh, Babylon is held accountable for getting their neighbours drunk with a view to exposing their nakedness. And that could mean that the Babylonians habitually shamed, taunted and humiliated the inhabitants of all the lands they conquered. Or it could even mean they got their neighbours drunk to take advantage of them sexually. But either way, Babylon stripped their captives of self-respect, psychologically subjecting them to indignity in an ongoing way. But they won't get away with it. And they will receive a like-for-like punishment. This time Babylon will drink and become drunk, exposed, ashamed, humiliated. But it'll be God bringing the cup. And it won't be filled with cheap wine, but with the wrath and his fury that one human being might treat his neighbour in such a humiliating way. Disgrace will replace glory for Babylon too. And so, friends, very quickly there, we've seen God's righteous indignation against extortion and thievery, against uh, bloodshed and environmental wastage, against drunken taunts and mind games, all features of the Babylonian shtick, right? Babylonian MO, Babylon 101. But the last thing God cracks them for and gets Habakkuk to write down and pass on is their idolatry. And his words expose both the stupidity and the offence of trusting in something that is of your own creation. And it's true, isn't it? Any idol, ancient or modern, because let's not pretend that we don't worship things our hands have made, shiny things that equally become objects of our devotion. Any idol, ancient or modern, cannot speak it cannot be roused to life it cannot give wisdom or counsel because they do not have breath in them how foolish it would be to worship something your hands have made you know the babylonians they were world-class idolaters they had a busy pantheon of gods that included such luminaries as enlil enki iana nabu nanasuan ninhusag and utu Bet you knew that. But Marduk, he was the granddaddy of them all. He was the god of creation, water, medicine, agriculture, justice and magic. It's a very full portfolio, isn't it? Reminded me of when Scott Morrison assigned all those portfolios to him during COVID. He's usually depicted like this. But look, he can't talk because he's just an image or perhaps a sculpture overlaid with silver and gold, breathless, lifeless, and wordless. We uh, previously lived on a very um, busy six-lane road that was the main artery through the northern beaches. And there was a gym across the road from us that pumped out techno every morning from 5.30 a.m. That was awesome. Um, There was a bus stop directly out front, Suffice to say, it was a a noisy street that we lived on. Uh, There were always sirens, trucks, buses, drunk people yelling or fighting, overly energetic people squeezing their work out in first thing in the morning, always noise, which you actually get used to very quickly. One of the features of living on this street, I just live there, on this street, 
um, the beautiful Tunk Street Northbridge is the peace and quiet which I'm enjoying. Now, actually, during um, the preschool hours of operation, it's not that quiet, I have to be honest. But there are some Saturday afternoons like yesterday where uh, I'll just suddenly, it'll suddenly occur to me that I cannot see another human being. And in fact, I listen very carefully and I cannot hear a single other noise. And then I think, if I strain my ears, I can actually hear the grass growing. It is that quiet. Now, I'm not saying it's boring and I'm watching the grass grow. I'm saying it's peaceful and I think I can hear the grass grow. And that's just a tiny bit disturbing, isn't it? Now, how will the Babylonians be repaid for their incessant worship of worthless, breathless idols? What's the match going to be this time? Have a look at verse 20. As the chapter finishes, the wordlessness of Babylon's idols is matched by the hush of the whole earth in the face of God in the temple amongst his people in Jerusalem. Idols cannot wake up, they cannot give any counsel, but the earth, when it sees God in his temple, in the midst of his people, are hushed to sins that is disturbing, perhaps even deafening. You see in verse 2, the Lord pens his reply to Habakkuk. Right, write this down, Habakkuk, it speaks of the end. You see in verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory like the oceans are filled. But at the end of the chapter, everything is quiet before his very presence. He is the precise opposite of the idols. He speaks with wisdom and worldwide glory. The only thing that matches the idols is silence. Yes, God will judge the violence, the greed, the arrogance, the idolatry of Babylon, indeed any nation of the world, and indeed he will judge the sins of the whole world. He's not absent, he's not paralysed, he's not disinterested. He might work in mysterious and baffling ways, but friends, he stands with his people and in fact the world will be silent before him at the majesty of his presence. Now let me ask you a question, fine people of St Mark's. How do you go at waiting What do you normally do when you face unexpected delays? Do you do that thing where you keep looking at your watch every 30 seconds? (laughs) Does that help? Do you slowly begin to rage on the inside? Does the red mist descend? Do you construct a very carefully worded argument in your head about the rudeness of the person who kept you waiting or the incompetence of the organisation that wasted your supremely valuable time? These days, it's, uh, it's easier to redeem that sort of lost time waiting, isn't it? You can listen to a podcast. You can start doing that doom-scrolling thing through social media if that's you. But you do something, don't you? What is it that you do? Because if you go back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, we're reminded that though God has provided a definitive answer, he hasn't given it a definite time frame, has he? Look at verse 2. The revelation of God's justice is plain. It awaits an appointed time, verse 3, but that's undefined. It will come with certainty without delay. And yet God says to Habakkuk, it's going to feel like it lingers. So you're going to need to wait a little longer. So it is worth working out how as Christians we wait well for God to act, to exercise judgment upon the injustices of earth, to relieve our suffering in ourselves or those we care about because he does act and we need to wait But there are some very poor alternatives to waiting well. Here's one poor alternative to waiting well. You throw your hands up in resignation and unbelief. 
God is slow in coming. Maybe he has just forgotten about me. Or I can't understand what he's doing. He's, he's baffling, imperceptible. Maybe he actually doesn't live at all. He's no different to those idols, the breathless, lifeless, wordless idols he so roundly condemns. Now that's one option. It's not that uncommon. It's easy to go that way, even as a Christian. You don't make a fuss about it. You just do that quiet quitting thing. You just slowly and faintly, well, you faint. Maybe you don't give up on God altogether, but you give up on him being at work in your life. And perhaps those two things aren't that different at ground level. That's one option. Another option is you try to take things into your own hands. If God is slow, if he's indirect, perhaps you need to be the one to take action. You become a a vigilante. Get your own back against those who have wronged you. Is that you? Is there a little bit of a keyboard warrior living in you? Does the peace of God ever rule in your heart so that when you are slighted, you actually don't feel like you have to win? I'm not saying you should never pursue justice via the the God-ordained systems we have, but do you ever lose out, even just in friendships, just in relationships, and are kind of okay with losing the argument? Or do you always have to be right? Do you always have to make it right? Do you have to do that yourself such that you cannot rest until you've stood up for yourself? You've made your point. You've won the argument. You've gotten one back or whatever it might be. You see, you could be a quiet quitter in the face of a God who appears silent or imperceptible or you could become a bit of a vigilante. Both of those are possibilities in the face of apparent delay. But maybe you do neither of those, but you stop thinking vertically and you just sort of focus on the horizontal and you realise when you think about the people and the culture around you that you actually think you're a bit better than them. Even if you wouldn't say it, you just think, I I really am a cut above, maybe two. I mean, you put the righteous back into righteous indignation. Or it might even be self-righteous, who knows? You know, Habakkuk chapter 2 not only reminds us that that God's actions to right wrongs is going to come, like it's going to happen. And when it does, the whole earth will be silenced before his glory. But it also reminds us that the righteous ones have always lived by faith. Have a look at verse 4. See, Habakkuk, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by faith. Now, it might say faithfulness in your version, but you will notice that the word faith is footnoted at the bottom of the page. And it could be either of those, but it's interesting the New Testament when it quotes this verse always says the righteous will live by faith. You see, as a Christian you can't do the quiet quitting thing because the righteous person lives by faith. And faith maintains a disposition that God will act at his appointed time, not at a time of my choosing. Faith lets God be God and admits that he's the one who knows the end from the beginning and I don't that he has a mastery over time and of space that my limited understanding and my puny humanity, I just don't have. And so the righteous will live by faith and will continue to wait expectantly rather than quiet quitting. Babylon was judged by the Persians and the Medes as a matter of history, just as God said he would. But Habakkuk and his friends had to wait for it to happen. 
because the righteous live by faith. The vigilantes, keyboard warriors uh, among us similarly need to remember that the righteous live by faith. And in particular, the faith that God is the one who's approved for judgment. I mean, we can and we should pursue justice through the systems available. But we do need to remember at the end of the day, vengeance belongs to God. And if our relationships with one another are going to be characterised by concord, by unity and by peace, there is a certain amount of forbearance and patience that is required of us. If we're going to persuade our neighbours of the beauty of the gospel, of the wisdom of God's ways, then won't we be shooting ourselves in the foot if we get bogged down in petty disagreements? The righteous will live by faith. God has got this for us. And we will be vindicated. But as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we discover an even better understanding of what it means for the righteous to live by faith. In Romans 1 and Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Habakkuk. And he argues the way to experience God's favour and blessing, rather than his wrath and fury, is to trust that his son has absorbed the fury and wrath of God upon himself that was due to us. And so that is now how the righteous live by faith on this side of the work of Jesus. You know, when you think about it, Jesus is the ultimate answer to Habakkuk's question, how long, God? What are you going to do about it? Are you just going to watch? Well, he's not going to just watch because he came down, didn't he? At ground level. And in the person of Jesus, he, he saw us with his own eyes And he looked upon us face to face. When you think about it, the life and death of Jesus is the ultimate acknowledgement that even if we're not as bad as Babylon, we are not exactly guilt-free in terms of our dealings with one another, our worship of idols, things that we've made with our own hands, and our allegiance to God. None of us, friends, can be righteous in our own sight. None of us can be righteous under our own steam Nobody is quite that faithful, but now we can be righteous in the sense of being treated by God as if we were right, pure, and as perfect as Jesus was in his earthly life. But this righteousness is only accessed by faith because as Habakkuk knew full well, the righteous have always lived by faith. As we finish, friends, you and I stand in the footsteps of Habakkuk today. We both look to the active intervention of God to restore us and our world. We both recognise that humans are not the solutions to humanity's problems. We realise that humans are the cause of our problems and only God can find a way out of our predicament. Where we do have a significant benefit over Habakkuk is not that the wait is entirely over, for a wait remains for us. The benefit we have is that God has come to deal with the malignant forces of sin and death and Satan, which have oppressed humanity in every age, and he's come to deal with it in the person of his son as a matter of history and fulfilment. So how much more fully can we, who live on this side of the cross of Christ, continue to live by faith, just as Habakkuk implores us? Friends, how do we deal with our doubts so that we don't choke on them, so that we move from fear to faith. We don't throw up our hands in despair. 
doing that quiet quitting thing. We don't give our hands to fighting vigilante style, nor even to think that we're better than others. For we know that Jesus has decisively acted for us just as we needed him to. And so we surrender all our lives, our hearts, our wills, our decisions, our futures and our ambitions to him. For that is what it means for the righteous to live by faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that all too often we throw up our hands in despair, quietly quitting, faintly fainting, or we turn them to fighting, becoming some form of a vigilante whenever we are wronged. We might even think that we're better than others. And yet we confess that we need to take Habakkuk's words deep into our heart that the righteous live by faith. You are not paralysed nor disinterested. You will vindicate us by your justice. And you have acted decisively for us in the person of the Lord Jesus, in his life, in his sacrificial death, and in his triumphant resurrection. So move us to follow him all of our days, for the righteous have always lived by faith. Amen.